Reading from Judges chapter 8, verses 22 to 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from your spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orpha. And all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. That seems to be a strange place to end a reading and to say thanks be to God, but in reality there's lots of those places in the book of Judges where the transition from one story to the next is not really a a happy thing, where we see Israel continuously turning away from the living God to serve the idols of the land around them. Now there are some happy parts to the story. And some of you may be wondering this morning, what happened to Judges chapter 7? That's that wonderful part. Why didn't we read that and say thanks be to God? Well, it's a little bit too long. And it's not that that part of the story is unimportant. It's certainly not. It's just that once again, that's a part of the story of Gideon that we all know. So I'm just going to run through it kind of quickly here. And uh, we need to begin just after the incident with the fleeces that we considered together last Lord's Day. And we read then that Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. Now, of course, at this point, there were 32,000 men with Gideon. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, which sounds strategically very strange to us, but this is the way the Lord works. The people are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And that's the key to understanding this story. The people had fallen into sin. God had given them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. They were oppressed, and they cried out to the Lord, and God determined in his grace that he was going to deliver them from their enemies, but he wanted them to understand where that deliverance came from. Because as we saw in the weeks past, Gideon and his family had an altar to Baal and a statue to Asherah, Baal's consort, up behind the house on the hill. And that's who the people of Israel were worshiping, and that's who they will worship again 
when the 40 years of rest that Ron read about have gone by, but God wants them to know, when you are delivered from the hand of Midian, that's me, Yahweh, the living God. I am the one who is delivering you. Do not boast as if you had saved yourself by the strength of your own hand. So in the succeeding verses, we see that number pared down from 32,000 to just 300 men. Maybe some of you have seen that movie about the 300 Spartans who defended Thermopylae against the Persians. It's not hard to make a bit of a comparison between the 300 Spartans and the 300 Israelites. But when the Spartans fought that overwhelmingly superior force of Persians, all 300 of them were eventually killed. When the living God brought 300 men of Israel against an army of Midianites and Malachites and all the people of the east who lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and whose camels are described as without number as the sand on the seashore in abundance, the end result was spectacularly different. In fact, when God's 300 men, they were his, not Gideon's, cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and every man just stood in his place around the camp of Midian and the Amalekites, then all that vast army that had come up against Israel cried out and fled. There was no reason for them to, humanly speaking. We can say, well, they were scared. There were suddenly torches blazing and people crying out all around the camp. But they were a vast host. The only reason for them to cry out and flee is because the living God was working deliverance for his people Israel. He was accomplishing by his providence and by his spirit what they would never have accomplished by their armies. For when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. So the Amalekites and the Midianites began to slay each other and the army fled. And at the end of the day, with vastly inferior numbers, even after there had been some reinforcement, the army of Israel, we are told, slain over 120,000 of those who oppressed them. So after such a victory, we're not surprised that when the men of Israel came back, they said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, do you hear the, the dissonance already that's developing in this story? God said, I'm going to pare this army down to just 300 men so that at the end of the day, when you have won the battle, you will understand that it was not by the strength of your own hand. It was not by the brilliant leadership of Gideon, that mighty man of valor. It was because of me, the living God. But as soon as the battle is done... They come to Gideon and say, rule over us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So when the fighting was all over, the men of, the men of Israel essentially asked Gideon to be their king. Now, Ralph Davis, um, who wrote one of the best commentaries that I've found on this subject, says that although the verb for become king, melak, remember that, that's the reason I'm reading this quote, melak, that's king. Gideon will eventually name a son Abimelech, Abimelech, and it's the same word. So here when the Israelites come to Gideon, they don't use that word Melech, 
but they still clearly intend a hereditary regime. They want Gideon and his sons and his grandsons to rule over them the way that kings rule after one another in a line of royal succession. That's not hard to understand, but what's harder to make sense of is Gideon's response. Because there seems to be dissonance in this too. Gideon says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, which seems wonderful, right, and proper. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the 300 were gods, not Gideon's. And the whole point of using so few men had been to prevent Gideon from getting the credit and Israel from saying, my own hand has saved me. So when the men of Israel say to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian, it's very apparent they had missed at least the best part of that point. And honestly, so do we, if we insist on making heroes of the judges. We noted last Lord's Day that Gideon was not really a mighty man of valor. There's nothing about his story to indicate that that was anything other than sarcasm on the part of the angel of the Lord. He was really kind of a timid fellow. But God had promised, I will be with you, just by the way, as the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us, in case some of us aren't mighty men of valor either. And so when the battle was won, the victory ought to have been ascribed to God, not to Gideon. And at first it seems like Gideon recognized this, but after that opening statement, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Gideon goes on in the very next verse and says, thinking about it though, (laughs) paraphrasing a little bit, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they, they the, the people they had defeated, had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they all had golden earrings and a whole lot more. Verse 26, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. By the way, just in case you can't do the math this quickly, that's roughly 42 pounds 42 pounds of gold, give or take. You know, we don't know exactly the measurements from those days, but what's a couple of pounds among friends? And we're told that's just, the, that's just the weight of the gold that was in their earrings that they had taken as spoil. All of this was besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So Gideon says, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But here's how that's going to happen. Davis suggests perhaps Gideon's refusal was a veiled acceptance of kingship. And he goes on, the context, after all, does contain some evidence of royal status. Gideon's role as a religious innovator, his keeping of a sizable harem, he eventually had 70 sons that he produced himself through his many wives, and the fact that he dubbed his concubine son, my father is king, which seems pretty conclusive. I will not rule over you, but I'm going to name my boy, my daddy is king. Judges 9, verses 29 to 31 Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, 
for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech, or Abimelech, which, as I said, being interpreted is, my dad is king. So did Gideon intend to rule over them? Well, my dad is king seems fairly conclusive. And then there's verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it. All that gold, that purple cloth, all of those ornaments, he took it and he made an ephod of it and he put it in his city in Ophrah. Now, of course, to us, the problem with Gideon doing that might not be immediately obvious because we may not remember although we should, that an ephod was a sacred garment at the very least and possibly more. When the ephod of the high priest is described in the law of God, we're told that there was a breastplate that went over top of the tunic, and within that breastplate was the urim and the thummim, and those devices were used so that the high priest could determine the will of God when people came to inquire of him. So you would go up to the temple and you would make sacrifice and you would offer your prayer. And if there was some troubling aspect of God's will that you didn't know, you would ask the high priest to inquire of God and the high priest would consult the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what they were or how they worked. But there were two and that's what they were for. When David was debating whether or not he should go up to Keilah, I think was the name of the town. He didn't pray and ask God to guide him through some invisible word that God would communicate to him. He went up to the priest and he inquired of the Lord. He said, inquire of the Lord for me whether or not I should go up. And that's how it would have been done. So this was a problem. Gideon made an ephod and he made an ephod of the type that that would really belong only to the high priest. The same word is used of the tunic that David wore when he danced or capered before the Lord as the ark was being brought in, but that was a simple linen tunic. This one involves gold and purple cloth and all kinds of ornamentation, and Gideon is making a statement with it. So after building at least one altar to the Lord in chapter 6, possibly two, and having inquired of the Lord and received an answer via the fleeces, Gideon has now decided that if the Lord is going to rule over Israel, the best way for that to happen would be through Gideon. And Gideon can be prophet, priest, and king. But as we've noted before, During the entire epoch of the judges, the tabernacle of the Lord and the priesthood of Israel remained intact. We often forget that because it's barely referenced in the book of Judges, but it was there, usually at Shiloh and occasionally, it seems, at Bethel, which weren't that far from where Gideon was. And it was there and only there that the people of Israel were meant to worship the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, they were told, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. One theory holds that while Shiloh was not that far away, still Shiloh was in Ephraim. And that tribe, Ephraim, had lately just been in conflict with Gideon over the whole matter of the battle. And maybe Gideon just didn't want to go 
into Ephraim whenever he needed to inquire of the Lord, which is putting kind of a positive spin on it. It may also have been that Gideon, like other leaders after him, did not want his people going to Ephraim to inquire of the Lord because that would severely diminish his own power and influence. Others have speculated that an ephod in this context might actually constitute not just a tunic with a breastplate, but a graven image of some kind. I don't think that's likely. Gideon had recently burned the altar to Baal and the Asherah that stood beside it. And really, if you stop and think about it, the error here, Gideon's error, his sin, if we dare say it, with the ephod is not unlike the incident with the fleeces. Gideon knew God's will. That's made clear throughout this story. When God wanted Gideon to do something or to know something, God communicated that to Gideon in ways that Gideon could not dispute. And in this case, he knew God's will because it was written in the book of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 12. You shall seek the place that the Lord God will choose out of all your tribes and put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. But once again, in spite of the faith and obedience that Gideon had shown in his defeat of the Midianites, he decided that he would not seek the place which the Lord chose out of all the tribes, but rather he would make the tribes come to him. And whether this ephod was simply a priestly garment or whether it was actually meant as an idol or even just by the simple expedient of making worship more convenient and accessible if somewhat less biblical, we're told in Judges 8 verse 27, all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So once again, Israel turns away from the living God who has made his presence to dwell on the, in the holy place at Shiloh where the tabernacle is. And they begin to worship in a way that's contrary to his commands and the more they worship that way, the more they fall away. So whether or not it was intended to be an idol, Gideon's ephod became one while Gideon was still alive. And it appears that even though the land had rest for the next 40 years, the people never really returned to the Lord their God. In fact, in verses 33 and 34 of Judges chapter 8, we read, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Beareth, that's covenant with Baal, their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. By the way, as you go through the book of Judges, this will be the last time that God delivers and there is rest afterwards. From this point on, that spiral begins to go quicker and quicker. And they will turn away from God and God will deliver them. And as soon as they've been delivered, they just turn away to another God, forgetting. And it's sad. It's sad how often the stories in Judges end this way. It's sad how often Bible stories in general end this way. Gideon made an ephod that caused the people to turn to idolatry. Solomon 
built altars for the false gods of his many wives, including Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, which means that at the end of his life, Solomon was engaging in a kind of false worship that involved throwing babies into a fire pit. Let's not try to gloss over what was going on in Solomon's day. King Asa, who began so well, crying out to the Lord for deliverance from a vastly superior army of Ethiopians in the valley of Zarephath, as he grew older, increasingly grew cold towards the Lord, and we're told at the end of his life, he had a disease in his feet, and he wouldn't even cry out to the Lord about that anymore, and so he died. King Uzziah, when he was strong, we're told, grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which is very similar to what we see Gideon doing in our story from Judges. And when King Uzziah, who had started off so well, decided to intrude himself into the worship of God, God struck him with leprosy, and he was a leper to the day of his death. And trust me, this list could go on and on and on. To borrow a phrase from Dale Ralph Davis, it's tough to end well. And I guess having said that, if nothing else, one positive note we can take from this endless list of fallen heroes in the Bible is that it ought to convince us that we are not dealing with fairy tales or made-up stories here. So many people want to bring that narrative to the Bible and say, well, that's just, it's, it's like Grimm's fairy tales. The story of Gideon is kind of like Cinderella or something. It's, it's got no more legitimacy as history than that. But when was the last time you heard a fairy tale or even a heroic epic like Beowulf, which I'm sure all of you have read? When was the last time you heard a story like that or like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings end and they all lived unhappily ever after, except for the ones who died unhappily before we got to the end of the story? When you're writing fairy tales, when you're writing epic hero stories, they do not end that way. And the Bible doesn't tell us these stories with those kinds of endings because they're not that kind of story. They're not meant to resonate with us in the way that some of our fairy tales and epic hero stories do. They're about something else. As we noted earlier, it's tough to end well even for great men. But scripture is not the story of great men and their deeds. And we need to get over thinking of it that way. Scripture is the story of our great God, the creator of heaven and earth, who uses whatever he has at hand, weak, cowardly, and even sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So, and... and some of you young men, maybe, I don't know if you've ever read the story of Samson, which we'll get to next week. And you imagined that the road to being buff and having six-pack abs was to grow your hair really long and stop eating grapes. You've missed the point of the story of Samson. The book of Judges is not really about him. And it's not about Gideon or Barak or Deborah or Jephthah. It's about the power and providence 
of Almighty God who doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. As I mentioned last week, that's the end of history. That the glory of God would be revealed in his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. You want to be on the right side of history, be on that side of history. And what it tells us that is, in spite of all the things that happen in Judges that are not what we see in the VeggieTales version, God is still at work in all of these things, in all of these sinful, broken, weak, willful people, according to the counsel of his own perfect will to accomplish exactly what he planned to accomplish during this period of Israel's history. There is no time ever when God has fallen asleep or when he stepped away from the throne because he had other business. His arm has not grown too short to save. And if that was true in Gideon's day, it's true to this day. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. When we think about the things that are happening in our world, the things that we see on the internet or on the news that cause us distress and fear and worry. Hearing a lot about tanks going into Ukraine and the possibility of nuclear war with Russia and it's kind of scary from a human point of view. But it takes on a completely different perspective when you remember God is still on his throne. Jesus Christ is still King of kings and Lord of lords. He is king over Russia and Ukraine. He is king over Canada and the United States and Germany. He is king over all kings and he is Lord over all lords. We do not need to be afraid. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So we don't need a hero today. Never needed heroes. Judges isn't about heroes. It's about God. And it's about those who, by the grace of God, turn to him in their weakness and find that his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. It's about those who understand that we have a treasure. Paul calls it the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. God made it that way. He wants it that way. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. God doesn't want people looking at us and saying, wow, they're awesome. Awesome people. God wants them looking at us and saying they must serve an awesome and almighty God. In a way, the book of Judges is about us. It's about people like us who come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. 
as the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers, sisters too. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world. That's us. God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Ehud, Othniel and Shamgar. God chose us. God chose even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And here's the point. If we trust in Christ alone, if we have come to God for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that means God chose us too. And God is at work in us and around us and through us to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. How amazing is that? Does it put a different perspective on the week just past? The week ahead? The news that maybe you watched before you came to church this morning? If the week gone by or the year, or the decade was the whole point of our being. As Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But we do not exist to simply squeeze our best life now out of the few short years that we are given in this fallen world. We do not exist for ourselves We do not exist for our own happiness or pleasures or even to leave some sort of a legacy by which we can be remembered. We do not exist really to end well, even in the best human sense of that expression. We exist to glorify the living God. That's why we're here. That's what God is doing in us and around us and through us. That's the story of Gideon, and that's the story of you and me. God chose us for his own glory. And because of him, you are in Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May we pray. Father, again, we would worship you and give you thanks for your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. That though we were foolish and weak, sinful, broken, You called us by your grace. And Father, because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, you have worked in us in such a way that now you no longer see us as sinful, broken, weak, and foolish. But rather, you see us as if we had never sinned or been sinners. 
as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ Jesus himself was obedient for us. Lord, Lord, help us not to boast in ourselves then or in our own righteousness or purity or holiness, but Lord, help us to boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, when we speak, give us grace that we may speak his words, words of life and words of grace in his name. Amen.